Howdy folks, welcome to another episode of The Russia Guy. Today's going to be a little different. I'm going to review five different op-eds. I'm going to summarize them. I'm going to share a few of my own thoughts. It's not going to be an interview podcast. In this sense, it's actually kind of going back to the way I started. The reason for this is because I've been doing a lot of summaries of op-eds and analytical texts for Medusa's daily newsletter. If you don't subscribe to that, I strongly encourage you to sign up. It comes out Monday through Friday, unless there's a holiday, or unless I'm really sick. <laughs> which I have been, but I've still been sending it out because, gosh darn it, the show must go on. Today, there are five op-eds I'm going to be looking at. The first one is by Oleg Kashin, and it's about the murder of a GRU veteran and Syria war veteran by ethnic Armenians, and Kashin looks at it from the perspective of ethnic riots and why weren't there any. The second text I'm looking at is by Vladimir Frolov, and it's about an upcoming U.S.-Israeli-Russia security summit in Jerusalem, and how Frolov thinks it's a chance for Moscow to find out what Russian help on Iran could be worth. The third one I'm going to be looking at is an op-ed by Dmitry Steshin in Komsomolskaya Pravda about Katerina Kruk's new job at Facebook, and how he thinks it's a nightmare for Russian patriots. This is a Maidan activist from Ukraine. The fourth text I'm going to be looking at is by Gleb Pavlovsky at the Moscow Carnegie Center, and he's got this very convoluted, very long essay about Russia's sort of role in the world system, and it's full of all these cosmic metaphors, and I'm going to be getting into some of those. And then the last text I'm looking at is, once again, by Oleg Kashin, and it's all about Vladislav Surkov's personal mythology and rumors about his resignation or ouster and what he sort of means for Russia's managed democracy and its control over politics. And yeah, so those are the five op-eds I'll be looking at, and I hope you enjoy. So on June 5th, columnist Oleg Kashin. Kashin's a... He's an interesting character. A lot of people hate him. In fact, I summarize his his articles regularly for Medusa's newsletter. And I tweet about it and whatnot. And I often get feedback from people that just don't like the guy. And I know, I get it. You know? He's a, a Russian nationalist, I suppose. I don't, I don't know if he identifies himself that way. But he's he's definitely a Russian nationalist. He worked with... Prasvirdin at uh, Sputniki Pogrom. I think he reported from Crimea during the annexation and whatnot. Anyway, this comes across in his writing. That's not in dispute. But the point is, is that I think he's an interesting writer. Uh, I think he's a funny guy in his writing. I mean, I enjoy reading his his stuff. Not because I agree with it. I just think it's interesting. I think it makes for a good read. So anyway, on June fifth, Kashin has a column at Republic. Used to be Salon. I liked. Salon better, I like the sound of it better, but whatever, it's called Republic now and has been for a while. Uh, but on June 5th, Kashin put out an op-ed about the murder of Nikita Bilyankin, this uh, Russian military intelligence veteran who fought in Syria. The guy was only 24. He died, he's, he was killed, that's sorry, I'll skip to the end. He was killed in a brawl with uh, some ethnic Armenians, apparently, in the suburb outside Moscow. Apparently, he, he tried to stop them, or he succeeded in stopping them from beating some guy up or some people up, but he got stabbed in the process and killed. He's only 24, and he'd already been in war. He'd already served with the GRU, and now he's dead. I guess the police seem to... They, they've arrested four of the suspects, but there were like a dozen guys in the group. I don't know if they were all Armenian, or some of them were, but some of them were, and some of them apparently got back to Armenia immediately afterwards. They, you know, they got on a, They went straight to the airport and went home. 
And so Kashin's looking at this tragedy, this murder, and he's wondering why it hasn't produced this, the ethnic riots that similar killings did in Kandapoga in 2006, or at Manier Square in 2010, or in Biryulova in 2013. It was sort of this, it's this, there's this trend of an ethnic Russian guy, usually. He's a soccer guy, or in this case, he's a war hero. Like, he's somebody that would presumably, his death would resonate with people. And Kashin says that the Belyankin death, in theory, would serve the same purpose, and it would mobilize, if not the nationalists, then some kind of local group that would, I don't know, be angry at uh, the ethnic minority that was responsible for the killing. So Kashin's wondering why this didn't galvanize the nation like like one would expect looking at it sort of on paper. And Kashin's theory, his answer to this question of why haven't Russians responded to Bidyankin's death like they used to in these ethnic riots I mentioned, or why indeed they haven't responded the way the Armenians did when a Russian soldier killed slaughtered a family of seven back in uh, 2015 in Guryurmi. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but anyway, this soldier stationed there went on a rampage. I forget if he was mentally ill or something. I mean, there's clearly, he's got something wrong with him to have done what he did. But uh, anyway, he killed a family of seven or killed seven members of a local family. He was eventually apprehended and tried in a Russian military court, I believe, but there were these massive protests against the idea that the Russians were going to handle this. They wanted him turned over to local law enforcement, and it was a national event. This obviously has not happened with Nikita Bilyankin. And Kashin actually credits Russia's anti-extremism policing with doing a lot to cripple the nationalist movement that would have normally mobilized in this case. And he also says that Bilyankin's sort of unique personal circumstances played a role here too. And what he means by that is that Bilyankin actually, in his... I mean, he died a young man, but when he was even younger, and I guess, I guess before he was in the military, at least before he went to Syria and joined the GRU, he was in the Antifa, I think that's how you say that, the anti-fascist sort of movement. I think he might have even been a skinhead, but like a left-wing skinhead. I'm pretty sure this is how it works. I'm not all that well-read on these movements, but my impression is that Bidyankin was an Antifa activist, sort of the enemy of the nationalists in lots of ways. So they're not going to, the nationalists are not going to rally to him, even though in theory he could be their perfect icon once again, right? A war hero killed by an ethnic minority. And the uh, the leftists aren't going to rally to him either. He won't be their icon because he had what is effectively this ultra-right death. And so they sort of cancel out. And that's, that's Kashin's theory as to why this hasn't mobilized uh, more protests. And it's an interesting idea. The, the amusing thing about Kashin's article here is that I think he's a little disappointed by this because he, like I said, is something of a nationalist. And so I think he would pres- he would prefer to see more national outrage a- about this this murder because he seems pretty convinced that there's the ethnic component is meaningful. I think that's debatable. I don't necessarily think that this is, this. it matters that the killers here were Armenian, but uh, that's the point he's making. Okay, so next up is an op-ed also in Republic by former diplomat Vladimir Frolov. And he writes a lot of these geopolitical think pieces sort of responding to, I don't know, the news of the day, the week. He's got a lot of hot takes, and one of the running themes of a lot of his analysis is that the Kremlin is still looking for this reward or this this prize that they can offer to the Trump administration to kickstart a real kind of reset in relations. It's, it's actually pretty amusing if you think about it from the American expertise perspective, because a lot of what you're, a lot of what the Americans assume is that Trump is looking for ways to repay the Russians for having gotten him elected, whereas Frolov essentially looks at this from the Rus- what he describes as the Russian perspective and the kind of motivation 
that he assumes is that the Kremlin is repeatedly looking for ways to ingratiate itself to the Trump administration and to deliver something that would, I don't know, win the Kremlin either its multipolar influence or something more concrete, perhaps. Anyway, in the article that was published on June 4th, Frolov says that there's a summit being planned sometime later this month in June, and it's going to have all the security heads of the United States, Israel, and Russia. So that's John Bolton, Nikolai Petrushev, and Mayor Ben Shabbat. And they're going to go to Jerusalem, have a security summit, you know, la-di-da, wonderful. So at first, this sort of looks like a demotion of sorts for Russia, because there were previously hopes that by this time, Putin and Trump would already be sitting down together at the next G20 summit, and now it doesn't look like that is going to happen. But Frolov says the Jerusalem summit is actually potentially good news for Russia because it will give the Kremlin a chance to lay out what it can do for the United States in Iran. He says that they've already been working to facilitate direct dialogue between Washington and Tehran, and Moscow's been employing various negotiating strategies, he says, apparently trying to convince the Iranians that Trump will be reelected, meaning that they can't just wait for a Democrat to come to the White House. That's not wise policy. They've, they've supposedly been telling the Iranians. And Putin recently warned Iran against abandoning the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, implying that you know if they leave, then they'll be held responsible for the agreement's collapse, even though the United States has already left. And Putin has apparently also simultaneously signaled to the United States that it should reconsider its position because Russia won't always be around to put out its fires, is, is how Frolov put it. And then there were also reports recently that Putin has refused to sell the S-400 anti-aircraft missile systems to the Iranians, and this is supposedly another signal to to not just the United States, but also Israel, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates. And all this, Frolov says, is sort of Russia's way of showing that it's serious about considering and promoting U.S. interests in expanding the parameters of a new agreement with Iran and it's all aimed at sort of limiting Iran's regional expansion and its sort of actions through its allies. Frolov says that the Kremlin also would like to see that and would like to see Tehran sort of withdraw from Syria specifically. And what does it gain? Well, it gains benefits from the mediation process itself because it increases Russia's international influence. And it's also an opportunity, Frolov says, for Russia to find out what Washington is willing to deliver in return for all this help. And this is a theme regularly in his, his articles. He said this very much the same thing about Venezuela. When Frolov first wrote about Russia's engagement in Venezuela, he seemed to be pretty critical of it. I think he thought it was mishandled. He thought that Russia was getting into something that could get it into trouble and expose it to risk. And he later seemed to come around to the idea that maybe it was handled not so badly after all, and that Russia could disengage, but present it as a sort of favor to the Trump administration. He even had this argument at one point in a previous op-ed where he said that Venezuela was the perfect gift for the Trump administration for its voters in Florida, and that it was essential to Trump's re-election in 2020. And so he's mixing kind of geopolitics and American domestic politics and so on. And that was his argument about Venezuela. He was When he was looking at Venezuela, it was always in the context of what could the Kremlin offer the Trump administration to... This is it kind of... He, he never quite fills in the blanks, right? So it's just to view them as an ally... Unclear. I mean, the, the the general goal is usually, I suppose, to limit or lift or whatever the, the sanctions. Uh, this, this is not really talk of recognizing uh, sovereignty over Crimea or anything like that. It's not quite that grand, but it does seem like Russia is perpetually looking for ways to, to make a better friend out of the Trump administration, 
presumably so that sanctions could be diminished or some kind of international cooperation could be expanded. I don't know, something like that. But it is amazing to me that that's how Frolov generally views the U.S.-Russian relationship, whether it's bilateral or if it's involving a third country, you know, in these cases it's Venezuela or it's Iran. But it's very different from most of the American commentary where the sort of ground assumption is that Trump and Putin are best buds and Trump is just desperate to find a way to repay you know, his uh, his overlord or, or whatever. So something I've also been reading lately is Komsomolskaya Pravda. I didn't read this before, but they have a pretty wild op-ed section or editorial section. And so I've been looking at it more regularly. And one of their special correspondents who also seems to write, I don't know, maybe he's just, maybe he's stopped writing from the field so much now and now he's more of an armchair guy because his articles pop up in this section, in this opinion section pretty often. But it's, I'm talking about Dmitry Steshin. For people out there that have followed the... Ukrainian crisis, war, annexation, and so on. You probably have heard of this guy, because if I remember correctly, he reported a lot from the war zone, you know, very sympathetically for the separatists or the invaders or rebels or whatever you want to call them. Freedom fighters, um, you know, terrorists. Anyway, he might have even, for all I know, he, you know, fought with them. I don't, I don't, I don't know the, his full life story. But anyway, he's, he's uh, rabidly patriotic or, you know, again, I don't know what the word, what the, the modifiers are here. The point being, he writes for Komsomolskaya Pravda, and he had an op-ed come out on uh, June 5th where he expressed his extreme anger but also concern and fear about the new appointment of new policy manager for Ukraine for Facebook. Is a woman named Katerina Kruk, who's a former Maidan activist. She's made some you know, very questionable comments, public comments. I don't know her that well, but I, I, you, know, you look up her name, and the first thing that came up was uh, some old tweets where she was celebrating or expressing her happiness or pride about the the fire that burned down the trade union's house in Odessa in May 2014 that killed several dozen people, most of them, or almost, almost all of them, anti-Maidan activists. So now she's going to be, or now she is, the new public policy manager for Ukraine, for Facebook. And Steshin is convinced that, now I don't know, I don't know if he's right about this or if he's completely you know, insane about this, but Katerina Kruk is the policy manager for Ukraine. Steshin says that Facebook's Cyrillic department or segment is all sort of there, and Kruk is going to be able to control the whole thing. So I, I don't know, I've, I have not heard of any public policy manager for Russia, so it does sound a little strange to me that, you know, Ukraine has one, and I'm not aware of other countries in that region having one. So I, I don't know if Facebook has one for every single country, like is there a public policy manager for Belarus? I don't know. I don't think so. So it's possible that Steshin's right that Kruk will have influence beyond just Ukraine, that maybe it will, it'll extend to all sort of Cyrillic-based Facebook communities. I don't know, but he's convinced that that's the case. And more importantly, he's convinced that her agenda is is the virtual genocide of Russian users. That, that kind of rhetoric's real scary, obviously, and he certainly thinks it's a scary thing. But when he gets down to the nitty-gritty of what he's talking about, he's basically saying that <laughs> and he, he's, he uses a lot of his own personal experience here. He's complaining that Russians get suspended from the website for using ethnic slurs. And his anger is based apparently on the fact that, on the apparent fact that Ukrainians are treated as a vulnerable group protected from hate speech and that Russians are not. So you can't use ethnic slurs against Ukrainians, but you can against Russians. And he says it's not fair, it's a double standard. And he also complains that he's been suspended from the site from based on, on uh, sort of 
reports against innocuous posts that were reported for on, on sort of false pretenses by Ukrainian activists. This is what Steshin says. And so he's convinced that Facebook's handed the keys over to the bad guys and you know now it's going to be a nightmare for Russian users. And he also has this this sort of vague bit where he says that Facebook's values are they're 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 a little bit a little bit different from Russia's core distinct values or distinct core values. Uh, and he never specifies quite what that is, other than to say that Facebook's pro-Western, and presumably Russian Russian values are not. And he doesn't go any in any more detail than that. But I don't know. Maybe he's talking about LGBT rights. Maybe he's talking about attitudes when it comes to hate speech. I don't know. But the conclusion that he reaches is that Roskomnadzor, Roskomnadzor, anyway, you know what it is, RKN, this is the, the Russian federal regulator or the fe- federal censor, he's th- he thinks they're going to bring the hammer down on Facebook in the sort of coming months. And they're going to insist on data localization and they're going to sort of turn up the heat if indeed the website's moderation policies change or shift or maybe if they stay the same and if they you know they, if they victimize Russians as, as Steshin seems to believe he thinks that the Russian officials are going to come to the rescue so on May 29th the Moscow Carnegie Center or the Carnegie Moscow Center or the center of Carnegie Moscow they, they have, they're very specific about how that word order is supposed to be I don't remember what it is okay wait do I remember it's the Carnegie Moscow Center Anyway, I once flipped the word order somewhere and got yelled at, so they care about that. That's not the point. The point is that on May 29th, they published a very, very long, I think it's about 3,000 words, essay by Gleb Pavlovsky, this political expert, used to be an insider. Now he is an outsider, but he still writes a lot, or he writes a lot more now, I guess, because he's not busy being an insider. This thing, I I had the most trouble reading it. I kind of hated it. I, I very much hated it. The whole thing is full of metaphors about interstellar anomalies, and I swear to God, I it just I don't think it says anything of of value, anything that you you kind of wouldn't intuit about Russian politics. But I wonder how much you get paid to write this sort of thing. Once you sort of achieve a certain status, and your name alone kind of carries a value, then I guess you you can write this stuff. Does it feel good to write it? I don't know. I mean, if the guy, if 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 Pavlovsky, if he is compelled to write this sort of thing, I think he should just start writing a sci-fi book, you know, some fiction. Because I swear, I don't get it. Anyway, I'll, I'm going to run through my. I'm I'm, work, I'm working off my notes for this one. So if some of it sounds like I'm speaking in highfalutin rhetoric, just remember that that's based on my notes where I already read it, broke it down into the most comprehensible points that I could decipher and then put it back together in English, again, trying to be as as coherent and simple as possible, because that's generally how I do this. I read the, you know, I read the op-eds and the essays, I take my notes of, like, the kind of core arguments, the essence of things, and then I put it back together in really my own language, and I try to speak plainly, because I'm not a fancy person. And this is what I get from it, this convoluted text packed with analogies to wormholes, radioactivity, he's probably been watching Chernobyl, archipelagos, refugees, and parallel universes, and it's all apparently describing Russia's global significance today, right? So that's what this that's what this essay is about. It's about Russia in multi-globality. Again, like, the, do you need that word, multi-globality? Globality? Globality. Ugh, just rotten, just terrible. Anyway, one of the metaphors is that Russia is radioactive. Now, he's not speaking literally, although that probably applies in many places, but he's saying that it's radioactive insofar as it's a source 
is a contagious source of international problems, not solutions. You got Putin's people spread all over the world. They're operating thanks to mysterious financial networks, and they're creating influence from nothing. That's a phrase that he uses. And again, I think this is supposed to conjure up the kind of scary magic and voodoo of, of, of radiation, I guess. What's Russian influence, right? If they're peddling Russian influence, what is it? Well, Pavlovsky says that it's a mix of excesses, excesses, special operations, and sudden penetrations into others' affairs. He's talking about rushing meddling, and he, he's saying that it is the fruit of distortions of global metrics. And so, what is a global metric? Well, what, I mean, let's, let's, let's rewind a second, because the, the idea that Russian meddling is the fruit of distortions of global metrics, he's, this is his way of saying that Russia's sort of over, not overplaying its hand so much as, there's, there's oh God, I, don't, I don't play cards that much. Is it like, I guess it's like bluffing, sort of? Ah, now I'm doing metaphors. Shit. Anyway, the point... <laughs> okay. The point is that what he's saying is... He's, yeah, then he starts talking about the focus has shifted from fl- fronts to flanks in terms of paranoias. I'm getting a bit lost now. I can only imagine how you feel. Let me backtrack a second. He's trying to describe how Russia is punching above its belt weight. That is a metaphor that makes sense to me. That's what he's saying, I'm pretty sure. He's saying that uh, that that Russia is meddling in other people's affairs, and the way they do that is out of step with its its geopolitical strength, and they do that by kind of breaking the rules, I guess. And this is something. This is a, a theme in his article that you know there were these rules in the Cold War, and it was there were the these great stakes, right? There was the 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 world hang hung in the balance, and when that ended, and you had this moment of American unipolarity and you know la 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 that goes on and then it sort of fades away or it's gone now or it's breaking down or it's broken down and you have these other countries Russia being one of them along with the you know I don't know China India Brazil whatnot who are no longer restrained by the kind of I don't know Armageddon that uh, that hung over everybody's head before and so they can't be held out of the game the international game oh, so many metaphors Jeez Louise. Let me skip down through my notes. This is this is exhausting. Ah, uh, boy. Why don't we skip to the idea of openings, or, or wormholes, as he calls them. He says that the spread of information has inflamed desires, and intermingling of cultures has mobilized refugees, that they are essentially like flank strategists, he says, that they, you know, they, take, they attack from the flank, and then they burrow into these openings or these holes created by weakened enforcement in target countries, that Russia is now a global refugee after the fall of the Soviet Union, and what they do is they go around probing the entire world for openings, and what he means by openings are where concepts, this is where concepts about globalization and progress diverge. And so, what does he mean by that? I think what he means is that, well, first of all, it's not, it doesn't sound like a very nice portrayal of refugees, that they're, that they have targets and that they're they're strategists and they're burrowing this is all this is all kind of uh this has negative overtones i would say so we're getting a glimpse at what pavlovsky thinks about immigrants or sorry refugees i guess maybe he would he'd be right at home here in the united states with the republican party today but anyway this notion of openings and vulnerabilities this is important to his understanding of russian foreign policy and it's under it's important to what he describes as globalization wormholes because again, his argument seems to be that the world system is porous 
and that countries like Russia are sort of testing the the weaknesses and vulnerabilities in the system. The system is essentially the he doesn't quite say this, but the system is sort of U, U.S. unipolarity, or maybe just sort of the Western conventions and and uh, regimes that dominate international relations, I guess. And so you have countries like Russia, countries like China, I suppose, that are sort of wandering all over, finding these vulnerabilities, and then kind of embedding themselves. And so that means that China is it's lobbying the United States and cultivating influence through whatever means it does. And Russia is doing its thing, and it's spreading its influence in the Central African Republic and the African continent, and Russia's hijacking France's wormhole, or its wormholes. And so you've got all these interstellar machinations. They're not limited to nation states, he points out. You know, you've also got various international organizations doing their thing, wielding sovereignty, accumulating funding. And behind that, you've got multimillionaires who are acting as mediators. And he, he says that it doesn't matter whether you're talking about environmentalist groups or private military companies, they're sort of behaving the same way. And so it's chaos, it's, it's sovereignty under fire and world systems collapsing, and it's Russia improvising and probing and meddling. And this is how he describes, this is his, his uh, exegesis, I think it's part two of I don't know how many parts, on Russian foreign policy, the Russian role in the world today. I tell you, very painful reading. And the last one I'll do, I'll do another Oleg Caution op-ed. This one was published again in Republic on May 27th. And this one's all about rumors about Vladislav Surkov's apparent resignation or firing. But he has this very interesting argument. Again, I, I, I find Caution to be an interesting, smart guy. He has this op-ed all about how Surkov's main real achievement throughout his entire political career has been building up his own personal myth. And that myth is that Surkov is personally essential for the operation of Russia's deep state. And so by deep state here, caution means Russia's managed political parties, its manipulated elections, the, the post-truth media, the propaganda you know, empire, and all the creative accounting that happens across the Russian state. Now, Kashin calls this a myth, but he also argues that Surkov will remain an influential figure in the Kremlin, whatever his formal position. So even if he ceases to be the Donbass curator, he'll remain vital to the Kremlin until the presidential administration figures out some new method for managing Russia's political system. So Kashin's kind of having it both ways here. He's saying that Surkov has inflated this myth of himself as the essential person to holding up and keeping in place Russia's sort of system of managing the country. It's not democracy. It's sort of it's managed democracy, right? That's his his calling card. So that's 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 sort of a phony story. But at the same time, Kashin's also saying, well, he also was instrumental to putting it all together. And if you're actually going to get rid of Surkov, you should sort of have a new system in place. And there's been a lot of talk about whatever the new system is today. The Tatyana Stanova has written repeatedly about the kind of tech tech technocratization. That's that's a pretty ugly word, but that's for better or for lack of a better. Word that I can think of at the moment. That's what she's written a lot about. And the kind of corporatization, that's still no good. Anyway, a lot of that happening in the Kremlin, sort of formalizing the making technocrats into governors and so on. I don't know if that, that, that might be different than what Surkov did. So maybe somebody would write or argue that that's the new political, that's the new system for managing Russia's political system and politics. I don't know. Kashin seems to think that uh, they're not there yet, and for that reason, Surkov will have to stick around. Kashin also argues that Surkov's real story is just sort of a kind of typical fall from grace, that he bet on Medvedev sticking around for a second term. 
he lost, and then he paid for the miscalculation with the job that he had in the Kremlin at the time. And he worked his way back into the Kremlin with the Donbass curator job, but he, he exists now in a diminished capacity. And the image he used to have before is kind of there, but uh, his actual power is not. So going forward, I think this is, this is going to be an interesting text to remember when thinking about Russia's power vertical. Power vertical is the subject of, you know, a million op-eds and think pieces. It's something that analysts are constantly writing about, trying to predict where it will go, who will be at the top, what you know how the shape will change and so on it's just that's any if you go to any newspaper or think tank half the the political text will be about that in in some way or another and i think this this argument that kashin has here about surkov it's interesting related to surkov specifically but it also i think it's just it's an interesting way to think about the political structure and the sort of weak institutions in the Russian political system, you know, to what degree do they depend on individuals? And so maybe the managed democracy is sort of linked to Surkov, and for Surkov to fade away, there needs to be something that takes his, takes the place of managed democracy, and perhaps it already has, in which case we should be looking at, at Kirienka or whoever is, is responsible for the sort of replacement, and then you, you want to track where he goes and how he fades and what's replaced. And so this text, I think, if, if you get a chance to read it, I would recommend it on those for those reasons that it's sort of it's a nice road sign or road post or whatever when thinking about the kind of high level power vertical politics stuff that's always happening in Russian opinion and analysis. That's today's show, where I looked at a few different op-eds and analytical texts. If you enjoy this podcast and like listening to it, please consider skipping over to patreon.com backslash Kevin Rothrock, where you can make a contribution. Thanks to everyone already pitching in, and I'm happy to get feedback on Twitter if ever you have a comment or a question about the show. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time. Дайте, что ли, карты в руки Погадать на короля Ой-ля-ля, ой-ля-ля Погадать на короля Ой-ля-ля, ой-ля-ля Эх-па! Завтра дальняя дорога Выпадает королю У него деньжонок много А я денежки люблю Ой-ля-ля, ой-ля-ля